the National Archives podcast series, Radicalism and Unrest, presented by Paul Carter. What we're going to try to do over the next sort of 45 minutes is to talk about radical unrest. And it's, we've given it a kind of a subtitle, quite a long one, really. How our ancestors tried to change the world they lived in. Now, because one of the things that, that's, that's struck me for a long, long time is that many of our records tell us about what, people, what our ancestors might have done, maybe you know, what their occupations were, what they did for a living, and how that might change over time, where they lived, what kind of houses that they lived. What people tended not to do, of course, is to, to write little things down saying, and this is what I thought about it all. This is how I thought about the, 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 the little bit of the world that I lived in, and whether I was happy with it or not, and also how we might have tried to change it. So we, we're going to attempt to do that. It's quite an awkward title, but we're going to try and do it in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a relatively smooth way. And we also want to try and overcome a kind of feeling that in the late 18th and early 19th century, our ancestors were, were, were quite parochial. You know, they knew what was happening maybe locally, but had no idea what was happening elsewhere. Because I think as soon as you move into this kind of area, then it is a little bit broader than that. And I've, I'd, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it as we go through. But I've put a slide up here really, to try to illustrate this. This is a public meeting. We're in uh, 1834, and it's just outside of Bradford, a place called Whipsey Moor. And it's a public meeting, and it's freedom, of sla- freedom or slavery, West Riding meeting, a big public meeting. But it's not about what's happening in Yorkshire, it's about the Tolpuddle Martyrs, it's about the Dorchester labourers who were convicted in 1834, sentenced to transportation. They were convicted, technically for swearing an illegal oath to each other, to say that we will not work below a certain amount of money. It was a combination, an early, one of the early trade unions. And they were probably unaware that in 1797, a piece of legislation was brought in after the naval mutinies to stop individuals swearing illegal oaths to each other. And technically, they weren't, they weren't convicted for being trade unionists, although that's how it, it, it comes down to us. It was on a technicality of swearing illegal oaths to each other, and they were transported. But the point about this is that ordinary working people up in the West Riding were quite aware of what was happening down in Dorchester, and were quite aware that they needed to do something about it, some kind of meeting, some kind of solidarity meeting about the, the Dorchester labourers. And in one of our other Home Office series, and Home Office is going to come up an awful lot, Home Office tells us an awful lot about how people thought about their part of the world and what they thought they'd need to do if they thought it needed to be changed. But in another series, HO17, there's a, there's a project, a catalogue HO17, and in fact, Bryony Kay and Chris Heather, who were both working on, on this project, there's a whole box full of petitions for clemency, outraged at the sentence of transportation that the Dorchester labourers received. At the moment, that's not catalogued, and you can't go into it and type the keywords in or the place names in or things like that. But there's a whole box load of petitions from all over the country in regard to that. So one of the other things that we want to try and do is to dispel this idea that somehow people were totally unaware of what's going on in other parts of the country, and they're either unaware or, or not particularly bothered. Now, I want to do address both the very, very popular material that, 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 to be honest, a lot of you will be aware of. If, you, if you've done anything at all on, on this sort of subject before, people like Thomas Paine, The Rights of Man, we're going to have material like that at the National Archives. This is in Treasury Solicitors because of the... They wanted to prosecute. They wanted to prosecute Payne, and they were putting together case papers for, for a prosecution. So that, that's why it's in TS, 
which is Treasury Solicitors, and a lot of stuff about radicalism and unrest and riots are going to be in there. But people like Payne come down to us as well-known individuals because they wrote the pamphlets, they wrote the books, and they put together very structured arguments against hereditary government and things like that, which brought them into conflict with the state. But there are also the, the less well-known, and there's thousands of these kind of things at the National Archives. The difficulty is, we're going to find out as we go through this, is actually getting hold of it. This is a copy of an anonymous letter uh, from Ashill in, in Norfolk. This is 1816. And what this letter does is it's, it's to the gentleman of the parish. It's, it's titled to the gentleman of the parish. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this letter further on, because we're going to do a kind of a chronology in, in a moment. But I just wanted to say that this letter just delineates and it just sets out in, in really quite a clear style what it is that they're dissatisfied with in their particular part of the world. They're dissatisfied with the level of wages. At the end of 1815, the end of the war with France, a, million, a quarter of a million men sorry, coming back onto an already saturated labour market. So wages, they're not happy with wages. They're not happy with the levels of poor relief which they're, they're able to, to, to eke out of the parish. They're not happy with the fact that the fields and the commons in this particular parish were enclosed during the wars, during the Napoleonic War. And they say, you know, one of the things that you've done is you've enclosed all of the lands, you've turfed the poor off the land. So there's a whole host of things that they're really, really unhappy about. I'll, I will go on to this a little bit later on, but I just wanted to say, you know, you've got the very well-known stuff and then the, then the not-so-well-known stuff. But be aware, there's a massive amount of that kind of stuff in here. And if you've got an ancestor and you can get back to a particular place in the late 18th, early part of the 19th century and just look at, well, what was the feeling there? What was, what was life like there? What were people dissatisfied with in their particular areas? Right. So, let's go. I'm going to do it in bite-sized chunks. As we kick off on this, I'm quite happy... So if people want to ask questions as we go along, if there's something I don't say that's particularly clear, you want me to just go over that, rather than keep it till the end, I'm quite happy if people want to just jump in and say, well, no, can you, can you explain that a little bit differently? 1790s becomes important for us in terms of the archives that drop out of what's happening. Something happens, not here, not in Britain at all, but happens over the channel, and that's the French Revolution, 1789, and the rhetoric of the revolution the ideology there of, of, uh, of freedom, of liberty, egalitarianism, they find quite a nice home in, in Britain, particularly in the early years of the revolution. That fades pretty quickly once we start going to war with France in 1793, but certainly in the, in the first few years, all of those ideas are picked up, and debating clubs and societies begin to debate these old ideas of, of, uh, of, of equality. There is... In the 1790s, a movement, a series of groupings, corresponding societies that spring up around the country. The most obvious example is the London Corresponding Society, and I think it's the, it's the one that's been written about the most. But effectively, what, what happens is a number of artisans get together in, in, in London. This is in 1792. And they begin to debate, and the, the, the initial things they talk about is the, the, the low wages that people are suffering from, the, the, the rise in the, the price of provisions. But they very quickly go on, not to talk about the economics, but to talk about the political. And one of the rules of the London Corresponding Society is, and, and you, you have to answer in the affirmative in order to be a member, is whether or not you believe 
that ordinary working people should have the vote, that Parliament should be reformed. It shouldn't be this exclusive club that's dependent upon property. And as long as you answer in the affirmative, then you may join the society. And I can't remember the figures offhand, but it's something like a dozen to start with. It gets up to about 30 or 40, and then into the hundreds. I think it maximises out at a few thousand, which is pretty impressive, because it's not just the London corresponding societies who are collecting some of the numbers on their figures, but up into Derby, up into in, in the West Riding, up into Lancashire, up into Dundee in Glasgow. And this is an example from, from Glasgow. This is from the Home Office Records, HO 120, which is the Scottish correspondence. It's totally unlisted, very difficult to get into. But their material there, and again, they go through what are our major resolutions. And the major resolutions aren't about the economics. They've already done that. They're really talking about the ability to reform Parliament in order for them to be represented. Now, from the government's perspective... And why we have this is that these are dangerous organisations. The government is not particularly enthralled with the idea of democracy in the 1790s. And really, it's one of the themes there. They, they use the word democracy in the late 18th century and the early part of the 19th century in the same way that we use the phrase anarchy. It's that kind of connotation to it. And it's a, it's a dangerous thing and it'll unsettle and it'll destabilise society. So the kind of materials that we have are letters from magistrates, employers and other worthies saying, and sending these kind of things in, saying, look what's happening in our area. This is what's happening in our area, and somehow we need to get on top of it. So an example here from the main Home Office Correspondence Series from HO42. This is, this is from Hull. And again, this is sent in because of the seditious nature, the planting of the liberty tree you know, in England, to say, well, you know, we, would like, we would like some of that. This is something that we would like. And this has been left outside the Guildhall at Hull. It's sent in by the mayor. And we can see that uh, £100 is to be paid on conviction for an offender. And £100 in 1794 is a huge amount of money. Should, should one of your mates know it was you who had put it there? It's a huge, a huge amount of money. And we have a mass of this kind of material buried within HO 42 for this, this period. From the state's perspective, then, these corresponding societies are a danger. What does happen in Scotland and in England is that the prime movers are prosecuted, and we have their trial papers and their case papers in Treasury Solicitors and various papers within Home Office that were collected for the, for the oppression of those groups. In 1797, those groups are outlawed. It's now illegal to have a group which corresponds elsewhere. You're allowed to actually meet together and talk and discuss. What you're not allowed is for London then to write to Dundee and say, well, what are you talking about? What do you think about what we're doing? That whole pattern is now illegal from 1798. The other thing that happens towards the end of the 1790s as a kind of a general oppressive piece of legislation is the Combination Acts. The Combination Acts of 1799 and 1800 effectively outlawed the, the combinations, trade unions. And that's the, that's the aim of, of that piece of legislation. And again, you get, a, uh, you get papers coming in in regard to the activities of trade unions in particular areas. And to some degree, you can see in the 1790s how that material is collected in by the Home Office prior to the legislation of 1799. 
for those of you who've done anything on early trade unions in the 18th century, you'll be, you'll be quite aware that 1799-1800, it's not the first time there's legislation against trade unions. That's, that's not what's happening here. Running up to that piece of legislation is individual pieces of legislation saying that this group of workers in this particular area, they're not allowed to strike. They're not allowed to combine to increase their conditions. So it might be the, the tailors in London. So you'll have a piece of legislation saying the tailors in London not allowed to combine. Doesn't affect the tailors in Bedfordshire, though. They're allowed to. So you have this sort of hodgepodge of individual legislations. What happens, though, in 1799-1800 is it becomes much more general. And that's partly, the government partly does this because of the fears engendered by the corresponding societies and the fears, of course, of what's happening over, over the channel. What it, what it doesn't do is it doesn't prevent workers combining. What it does is it drives that underground. So you still get strikes, disputes, riots. The, probably the best known of these are the Ludamic disturbances, which occur from sort of like 1811, 12, 13, drop off a little bit and then return a little bit towards the end of the war. Luddism comes down to us as a phrase, we still use it. We still use Luddism. And we use it as a kind of a derogatory term. And we'd say things like, that ah, Chris Heather, you don't like using computers, bit of a Luddite. And we'd direct it in that kind of, we'd use it in that kind of way. And I think it's a very unfair kind of way. It's unfair, it's unfair because the Luddites weren't against machinery per se. That's not what they said. What they said is, we don't like the technology that's been brought in that's displacing the standards of living that we've come to expect. And so when you, when you read about the Luddites destroying the machinery, there's a couple of things that we need to bear in mind. One is, it wasn't their first reaction. Their first reaction was to petition Parliament. And they petitioned Parliament on a number of issues. One was about apprenticeships, how apprenticeships should be maintained. And the government, the government poo-poo this, and it's about this time that actually apprenticeships goes, the, the enforcement of apprenticeship periods. The other thing which they do which is really far-sighted, is that they also say, well, how about, how about a tax on the new large looms, because these are the ones that are putting, out, putting us out of work, and from that money, you then retrain. We can work in different, different things, maybe. How far-sighted is that? But again, that's, that's thrown out, that's, that's taken a note. The actually raising of the hammers and the destruction of the new technology in those counties is the last thing that happens and not the first thing that happens. And it happens because their petitions are torn and thrown and, and no notice is taken of them. But the key thing, what I'm trying to say here is, is that the Combination Acts don't prevent combinations, it drives them underground. And as, as, a, as a result of these being underground and regarded as much more seditious, what you have in the records is an enormous amount of correspondence from magistrates and employers saying this is what's happening in this village, this is what's happening in this town. So the kind of material continues through this early Home Office correspondence series. What does happen towards the end of the war is by about 1813, 1814, it does seem quite apparent that we're going to win the war. We're going to, we're going to win the war with France. And the middle classes return return to the, 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 the radical fray. Because, of course, it's not just the labouring classes who weren't excluded from the franchise at this period. Many, if not most, of what we would now regard to as the middling kind of folk would also be excluded. 
And so towards the end of the war, we do have a number of these things called Hampton Clubs. And when I say a number, it's quite a high number. And they spring up, again, all over England, Wales and Scotland. They're looking for parliamentary reform. That's what they're arguing for. And you can see from about this time, there's a flowering of, of, of radical politics. And the period between sort of 1815 and 1820 is regarded by most historians as a heroic age of, uh, of British radicalism, which is a wonderful phrase. But it comes towards the end of the war with France. Now, in terms of what we have in regard to that is if you, if you look at our class lists for HO42, which is that's a key series for us, there's an enormous amount of correspondence coming in. When you get to sort of 1815, 1816, the number of boxes per year goes up simply because we're looking at more and more stuff coming in from the counties. Now, some of it, I think, for the vast majority of us, would be, would be new it's stuff that we don't, we don't really know about, even those of us who are quite interested in the period. And so I've put a couple of these over at, at, at this side of the, the screen. This is an anonymous item, this is, it's, and it's called Signed Off as the Voice of the Multitude, which we thought about as maybe the title of the talk, which maybe would have been much shorter than the one we settled on. The Voice of the Multitude, this is from Birmingham. This is from Birmingham. So, again, you've got this variety around the country. Fantastic, fantastic line drawing. Here, this lion. I mean, it, might, it don't look much on this screen, but when you've got the document in front, it's really finely written. It's fantastic. But again, it sets out the, the kind of the, 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 the ills of the land and what needs to occur in terms of reform. And you can see a tradition building up here in the 1790s, the, the Liberty Tree. They also have the things called Liberty Caps. And here, the lion's got this little stick with the cap on there. And you can see there's a kind of a very definite and conscious view of these Paynite views from the, from the rights of man and the way in which you know, people have a sense of history and looking back at what's happened before. This is the letter from Norfolk. And one of the things I really like about this is that you know, we're, in, we're in Norfolk, one of the rural counties, and what they do is they, they, they set out what the problems are Wages are too low, relief is, uh, relief is low and difficult to get hold of. You've enclosed all of the commons and the common fields. But then, just towards the end, this bit here, they do this. They say, we intend to have things as we like. You have had a good long term. We have counted up that we have gotten about 60 of us to one of you. <laughs> Therefore, should you govern... So many to one. And I like that question. I just like the way they've raised this idea of, you know, where, if, we're, if we're this big group of people, you know, how come you're in charge? You know, so I, I, and, and it's that kind of thing about when people talk about, well, yeah, yeah, with, you know, with, with the Luddites and people being reactive, but in the main, people weren't worried about these kind of things. And I think, well, well how would we possibly know? We can't, we can't just assume one way or the other. But one of the things that you get a feel from, from these records, is just that. It's just that. Lots and lots of records, different magistrates writing in. This is happening here, that's happening there. The letter itself is not an original, it's a copy. They've sent a copy in. 
And the reason they've sent a copy in is they're trying to match up the handwriting of the original one to somebody in the, lo in the locality. They're trying to find out who this is who's, who's sent the letter in. Smashing piece of archive there. The more well-known, let's go on to a couple here. So we've, we've got these, and we shouldn't underestimate these because there's, there's lots of it. This was in Home Office, but it's been extracted. It's been extracted to keep it, to keep it flat. So it's a wonderful colour drawing. I know it's on our website, and we've used it many, many times, and I think it's also been in several publications. It's not always told, though, the context of what this is. You know, where does this come from? How come we've got this in our records? It's been purchased by a man called Jenkins. He's, he was a weaver, he was an ex-Royal Marine. I don't know a great deal about Royal Marine records or whether or not we would have anything like that. Now, what he uses, and I've, I've tried to work out how this works. I can't really, but it seems as though what he has is a magnifying glass, and he uses a lamp, and somehow he puts these in certain areas like that, and it allows the light on the lamp shine the image through the glass onto a wall, so these become life-size. Right? Now, he's taken up in Devon, and that's where he's doing his little light shows. And it's another thing about this idea of parochialism. Because here what you've got is an event in Manchester. And then, straight from the Sky News desk in Devon, is the, is the, the story being told of what's happening. And that this is quite important. This is quite an important event. One of, one of many important events at the, you know, from the end of the Republic War to about 1820. The, the item at the end... Can everybody make out what that is? Or have I written it down there now, haven't I? Yeah, it's a spike. Which I tried ordering that up for today, but I, I think they've got it over in conservation. Why? I don't know. Because I can't remember if they can, they're actually conserving this. It is a metal spike, and there are three of them. The intention of this group of individuals, which come down to us as the Cato Street conspirators, is to execute leading members of the cabinet and to establish a republican government here in London. So again, Treasury Solicitor's Office, you can see why. It's a state prosecution. And, and, and of course the idea was, is that, I mean, ideologically part of this story is that the spikes and the placing of heads on spikes was, was very much something you did with traitors. Somebody who, you know, was, was against you. And so ideologically the, the idea there is to say, well, actually, you know, we're the majority, they're against us. They're the traitors. It's the spike. That's, that's, that's why the spike is relevant for them. Now, and as I say, you, you, you've got a mass of correspondence coming in, most of which is very difficult to get to, although I, I, towards the end we're going to do a how do I get into this stuff. So we're doing the chronology and then we'll do the how do we get into this stuff later on. What happens in 1820, though, there's an uncharacteristic lull, I think is your phrase, Jenny, because then if, if, we, if we think about, you know, What's happening at this period, you know, the number of disputes going up, riots, various instigations of, of, of revolution, whether or not there ever was a real chance of that coming off, I, I think is very, very debatable in, in, in this particular period. The government react to all this, though, and towards the end of, sort of 18, 18, 18, 19, a number of measures are brought in, tax on newspapers, so you have a stamped press now, and that takes newspapers and, and, and the news away from the ordinary individual. Meetings are now going to be controlled and meetings over, over a certain number would not be able to take place unless a magistrate had given written agreement to. So these kind of events such as this become much harder to organise without immediately breaking the law and bringing the forces of authority down on you. 
1820, you do get this, this lull. And I think part of this can be explained by the fact that, I mean, these are, these are wonderful and, and really interesting parts of our history. But they didn't succeed. So we don't get the vote as a result of what happens up in Manchester. The Cato Street conspirators never had a chance because there's a government spy in there sending all these letters back to the Home Office, which is why we know so much about them, because they're in our archive. So, and to some degree, there's nothing affects a movement more than defeat. You know, if a movement goes into a defeat, it's very hard to keep, keep people's heads up. And of course, a number of the, of the, the well-known leaders, Henry Hunt was the main speaker here, uh, one, of the, one of the radicals of the time. And he's arrested in 1819. And of course, the, the, the poster itself, the massacre itself, is where the yeomanry is sent in by the local magistrates to, to get Henry Hunt, to arrest him immediately as soon as he walks onto the stage. And it's, it's not that that's particularly unusual, because quite often the yeomanry would be, would be used. Normally they'd use the flat of the sword, though, to kind of push the crowd and, and make an entrance. But here they didn't. Here they, they slashed away at the crowd and, and around a dozen die and, and many hundreds more are injured during the, during the dispute. So we then go into this sort of characteristic lull throughout the 1820s. So I have very little to say there. Very disappointed. What I'm going to do now though, because it, it picks up almost immediately in 1830, and I'm going to hand over to Jenny who's been doing an awful lot of work on a, a series of records that follow on from these that really tell the story of what's happening uh, during the 1830s. Um, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time now taking you through the period from 1830 to 1837 in terms of the records we hold here at the National Archives. Although this is the shortest, shortest period in our timeline, and this is really only because the amount of evidence we have relating to this period and the amount that occurred in this time means that there's an awful lot to talk about. The period begins, as Paul mentioned, after this uncharacteristic lull in the late 1820s. In 1829-1830 is really where things start to change, however. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly the primary cause for this change, but it's been suggested that it's sort of a combination of factors that can really explain a re-emergence of labouring class unrest at the time. The ruling Tory party was weakened following controversy and infighting over the Catholic Emancipation Act, which was in 1829, and consequently a weaker government was therefore less able to cope with an economic downturn that happened around this time, and consequently the added pressure this placed on the poor relief. So things really were sort of starting to get going again, people were getting, feeling sort of a bit upset again about their situation. Agricultural wages were falling, unemployment and underemployment were rising, many landowning farmers and middle classes were prospering as there was a growing demand for food from expanding populations. So increasingly more effective use of animals, land and machinery meant that there was uh, less long-term jobs, less decent wages, and so labourers were finding these harder and harder to come by. This is really only one reason for an upturn um, that we see at this time in direct action. It, it, it formulated in a series of disturbances and riots um, across the country that became known as the Swing Riots, which you may um, or may not have heard of. 
the evidence of unrest and riots can be found throughout the, the Home Office records, which is the HO52 series, which is mainly what I'm referring to. And this map here shows you sort of the spread of these disturbances. These are just, there's a pinpoint for each one that was reported. So it's only the ones that reported, but you can really see north, south, east, west. It really covered the whole country. So, but most of the people involved in sort of direct action like this, riots and disturbances at the time, particularly violent or illegal disturbances, didn't leave their own account of the events in the 1830s, sort of as Paul was mentioning earlier. But their actions were widely reported and by magistrates and other community leaders at the time as they wrote into the Home Office to report what was happening around the country. This makes this set of records, the HO52 set, a really potentially exciting resource for historians, whether family, local or otherwise, because it's really telling the story of of the untold working class before, really giving us some insight into what they were doing and what how they were feeling, as Paul was saying. So at the time, the, the Home Secretary had responsibility for internal affairs and the prevention of civil disobedience. So as these unrests started going, thousands and thousands of letters and reports from around the country started flooding into the Home Office. And this is what we see in the HO52 series. It's a massively rich collection of things. Okay, so I've just, I'm going to select a few examples just to give you some idea of what they hold. And we'll have a look at them now. Okay, so to start us off, the disturbances that occurred um, manifested themselves in many different ways, but largely it seems they began with either arson, machine breaking, or the sending of threatening letters, which were all very characteristic of swing at the time. An excellent example you'll see in the top left over there. It's another anonymous letter, but it's actually signed Swing, which is uh, obviously very nice for me to show you from the Swing riots. Um, if you have a quick look, I don't want to move too far away from the microphone, but... Um, it asked them to, dis to destroy the damned um, power looms. And um, they, they say, you had better change the situation or you will lose more than you've gained in the last seven years. <laughs> so it's just sort of like, it's, it's a generally threatening letter um, sent at the time. It's really a good example of what the kind of thing you see. Now, these were taken very seriously by the magistrates at the time, and there's a good example just underneath that, which is from Devon at the same time in 1830, the one above is Somerset, and it's offering £50 pounds for, for the, the writer of a threatening letter. And again, this is a large amount of money at the time, so you can really see how... How, how worried they were by things like this and how intimidating they really found things. Throughout the series, there's also a lot of information about people who were convicted for writing these letters. And a lot of them, a surprising amount, were actually uh, sentenced to transportation. And if you remember, Paul was talking just now about those who were threatening to execute the cabinet and stick their heads on spikes. They were also um, sentenced to transportation. So they're, they're given the same sentence. So you can really see how seriously they took these kind of things. So as, they, um, as a response to these threats and acts of violence that were happening all around, in the HO52 series, we see them coming out in pleas to the government for military support. Um, so there's, there's, there's hundreds of frantic letters saying, please send troops down. We really are worried about what's happening here and we need some support. But this didn't always happen. So in the meantime, upstanding members of the community were expected to volunteer to be sworn in as special constables. Um, which meant they were given emergency powers in the time of crisis. And this poster here 
is a, a nice example of who they're looking for, um, how they're looking for the uh, for the the businessmen and the upstanding members of of the town to um, nominate themselves to be special constables. It wasn't always easy to persuade these people, local farmers or businessmen, to do this, as they really feared um, for their families and for their property. Because if groups of people, perhaps their own workers, found out that they were being sworn in with these new powers, it really wasn't something that they wanted people to know about. However, plenty were sworn in, and um, these are rep reported again throughout the series. We sometimes get a little note saying, oh, we've sworn in 140 special constables, but now and again you actually get the full list of names and occupations, so up to 200 people can be listed in one letter, which obviously is an excellent resource, again, for any family historians, local historians, or researchers that, if you're lucky enough to find a familiar name. My name, Orm, isn't particularly common, but I found it in a list of special constables in Middlesex, so it can be done. So as we move on through the period, sort of past the swing riots, we move on to the reform riots. And there's a little bit of a blur, really, between swing riots and the reform riots, because they happen around the same time, and it's really a little bit of an academic distinction between the two. But in general, the sw swing riots are more sort of rural riots, and the reform riots are more sort of poli politically motivated. So we move towards the reform riots, which uh, uh, culminated in the Great Reform Act in 1832. But during these riots, we really see the evidence of frustration and anger of those involved in the disturbances. So it's not just the magistrates and the community leaders who are feeling sort of a bit scared, a bit unknowing about what was happening. It's actually the, the labourers themselves um, that are involved. And a brilliant example of this is the top right just here. Um, it's a letter addressed to traitors at the time. And they threaten within the letter that anybody who's a traitor to their cause, whether they're working for a lower wage or working during a strike period, they will rip out their hearts and stick their hearts on the horns of a bull. And should you have trouble imagining this, they've included a very nice little drawing there so you can uh, really see what they're talking about. I think that's a particularly good example of the kind of things that were happening. So it really is sort of friends turning on friends. I mean, we see evidence throughout the series again of beatings happening, like neighbors turning on neighbours as it really was a very frantic time if you're trying to feed your family and you're trying to hold out for, for higher wages you turn everybody against you unfortunately it seems so it's a, it's a very stressful time for people involved so after these reform acts comes the great reform act of 1832 which was as many of you may know only great for a small amount of people unfortunately the middle classes came off fairly well as the amount of money or land required to qualify for a vote was lowered so 300,000 extra people were enfranchised during the act but those that were largely involved in these kind of riots and disturbances really were still very underrepresented. So towards the end of this period, towards the, to, coming up to 1837, swing riots and the reform riots were um, investigated as part of the Royal Commission, um, which was set up in 1832 and then reported in 1834, which led to the new poor law. This was the beginning, really, of the Victorian workhouse system, and this is where the distribution of poverty relief was um, really dramatically altered. Basically, the, the, the main difference that, that happened was that the lowest level of labourer, their wage or whatever level of living they had, below that level was then considered pauper. There was a line drawn. And the workhouses were designed to be a deterrent. So any inmate in a workhouse would, be, would have to be living at a lower level than the pauper level within the workhouse. So really, you only went in there at a very last resort because it was such horrendous conditions. 
there was then, after this line was drawn, there was then a fear that labourers would band together to increase their wages. So this is where, when Paul was talking earlier about the toll paddle martyrs, this is where this really comes in, when the forming of groups was outlawed. And the toll paddle martyrs are an, an excellent example of this. They were used as a sort of example of what would happen to you should you group together at this time and try and keep your wages higher as labourers. And they were all sentenced to transportation, as Paul was saying. Toll paddle martyrs are still remembered today in toll paddle itself. They have a little festival every year to mark sort of the stand that these men took during what proved to be a very sort of unsettled time for everybody around them. So following the new poor laws, these effects came in right at the end of this period. We see the beginnings of the anti-new poor law agitations, which we've very cleverly named as such as historians. Um, and these begin to occur from about 1837. Um, there's actually a historian called Edward Royal who has really marked this point as, the, as a point of a change in the demands of the groups at the time. There's, we see a change in sort of less no's, as it were. There's less just, oh, we don't want low wages and things like that. And they want there's more wants um, given. They, um, they're very clear about the wants they want. They, <laughs> wants they want. they want wider emancipation. They want secret ballots. And it's these clear wants that come through and spill over and become the six points of the People's Charter, which you may uh, recognize as, leading, as becoming the basis of the Chartist movement which then dominated the trade union history really in the middle part of the uh, 19th century and which Paul will now take you through. As Jenny was saying, what, what, what seems to have happened, and you can pick these up from the individuals that you see uh, in the records, is that the introduction of the new poor law in 1834, it doesn't get rolled out into the northern counties until sort of 36, 37, and it's there really that the new poor law commissioners hit a, hit a wall. Uh, because it's in those districts that trade unionism is, al is already quite established. Not just trade unions, but these other things called short time committees, which had been arguing in the industrial districts that hours were too long. Uh, you know, sort of you know, 12, 13, 14 hours a, a, a day at work in the factories. And these people very quickly became the same people that you then find on the anti poor law committees particularly around the West Riding, South Lancashire, elsewhere. And there's a couple of examples that we've put up there from, uh, well, this one's from, uh, this one's from Bradford. This is from Bradford. I'm from Bradford. I use this image an awful lot. I tend to think this is absolutely, it's a fantastic volume. And fortunately, it sort of, uh, it, it sort of put me onto these records because I'd, I'd really looked because I thought, oh, I wonder what was happening in my particular area at that time. But you get a, a whole host of reports. And not just, not just that there was this battle in Bradford, there's a whole host of papers naming names of who's involved. And you can then spin off into the assize records and the criminal records and elsewhere, following these individuals through. And it, it, you do see the, the names that crop up in the anti-Polon agitations then crop up in the Chartist agitations in uh, so 1838. So, we, I mean, the, 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 the People's Charter, I think, is published in 1938. And you can see that what they're not doing at all here is there's no economic demand. There's no specific kind of uh, economic demand at all. This is not about, you know, let's get rid of the workhouse. That'll be one of our demands. Or let's increase wages. That'll be one of our demands. They don't do that. What they do is they set out a very clear political programme. And this is probably the first industrial political movement on the face of the planet, the Chartists. They do have this very, it's very much a national programme. I don't want to say, I don't want to claim things for it that's, that's not there. There are lots of issues that divided people who would consider themselves to be Chartists. But effectively it's signing up to these 
particular points. So the idea of a secret ballot, which we would take as just purely, obviously, natural and reasonable, that's not how that would work. The way that this would work around this time is... Um, sorry, can I have your name? Mike. Mike. Is, sorry? Pike. Pike? Yeah, surname. Yeah, can I have your first name? Anthony. Anthony. The way this would work, though, is that Anthony would go in and he would write his name down to the, next to the candidate that he wants to vote for, and I, being your employer... And your landlord would then be able to walk in afterwards and see whether you voted the right way or not. So this was considered to be quite an important piece of, you know, the, the Chartist demands. Members of Parliament not to be required to own property. The fact that you had to own property, and a fair amount, in order to register yourself uh, as a candidate for, for, to be a Member of Parliament. MPs to be paid a salary. Well, that's a little different today because there's quite a lot about how much MPs get paid, but this is a period when you didn't get anything at all, and the result was that you had to be a person of independent means in order to stand, which effectively said that's it, there were no working people to stand for, for Parliament. Electoral districts to be of equal size, and of course today we have boundaries redrawn every now and again as populations in different areas shift, move and grow. Universal male suffrage. There was, in fact, over 100 female charter associations in the, in the period that we're talking about. And there was quite a lot of debate about whether or not what the Charter should put forward as one of their main planks here was not universal male suffrage, but, you, uh, but female suffrage as well. Now, that was considered a step too far. I, 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 you know, and, and there are all kinds of historical reasons for that. But that would have been a huge change, even on its own. That would have been a huge change and a real big shift. A real big shift. Come back to this one, because to some degree, all the others are now, you know, we, we now can, I can go in there and put a tick and nobody's going to look at it. You know, all, all of these things are fine. This is the only one, though, they don't get. General elections were held annually. That's the only one that in the intervening period, we've never, we've never got that. The whole idea, the, the Chartist held that one in high esteem. They said these other ones, without that, without that, somebody can get in on a particular platform and then not do it. Whereas if, if they knew that every year they're up for re-election, that would be our way of making sure that they did the kind of things that we voted them in to do. So that was the, that was the, 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 the charter. That was the, 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 four, the six principles, I should say, that people rallied round during this period. Now, the amount of material, again, begins to increase. And I think this sort of period here, so like up to the 1850s, up to the 1860s, it's that kind of period where I think we're, we're really good for. The National Archives is really good as a labour archive, giving you real insight, individual people named, specific places named, and the kind of events we're really good for. After that period, we tail off. And we tail off for good reason. By 1856, all counties are to have their own police forces. In other words, a new bureaucracy comes in between the Home Secretary and what's happening at a local level. And it's this new bureaucracy, the, the county police forces and the borough police forces, that are to deal with you know, civil un unrest in, in particular areas. But what I draw your attention to here is how good some of this stuff is. This is, a, this is a little early. I've actually strayed back into Jenny's 1830s period. This is a, the, the Poor Man's Guardian. I, I said earlier about this idea of taxing newspapers. Hetherington, who's the publisher, he's in, he's in and out of prison quite a lot because he publishes newspapers and he says, I'm going to publish and be damned. He doesn't, he doesn't put a, a stamp on the papers, he sells them 
uh, very, very cheaply. What happens during the Chartist period is they, they have their own newspapers, and this is a copy that, that we have uh, at the National Archives, the Northern Star. And this is the most important, this is the most important of the, the Chartist newspapers. It undoubtedly has a national reach, and it's giving stories from all over the country. And again, this idea of, you know, it's, it's not about parochialism. Working people in this period, they want to know what's happening elsewhere and they relate to it and they send their own stories in of what's happening in their locality. And in this count here, this is uh, uh, Treasury Solicitors, because we're looking at a prosecution, Radicals of Hull. Now, we didn't cotton on to this, me and Jenny, until we put this, we thought about this really at lunchtime. That is the Mayor of Hull sending this in. Now, I don't know if there's something about Hull, and I don't know if we have anybody from Hull here today who will explain why a load of our stuff is about you. I think it's just pure luck. I think what we have is uh, an archive that just relates across the country as a whole. And so I would expect stuff from all over the country in regard to this. And I've put in a very random group of notices here of meetings that were taking place. I do like this one, the unenfranchised rally around your flag, uh, the Republic for France and the Charter for England, uh, and that's at Merthyr Tidville. But as you can see, we've got them here, this is Gloucester, this is uh, Wallingford, and there's a huge amount of that kind of material that's sent in. And the only reason this kind of stuff survives is that it comes into the Home Office. I've, I've, I've tried looking around county record offices, and I've tried going to specialist archives in relation to labour history, and it does appear that we've got such a rich source here for the simple reason that local magistrates, local employers, local worthies send so much of this in as example to say this is what is happening, and therefore this uh, archive is where you'd, you'd pick that up. And so pretty much from the 1790s through to around about 1850, maybe a little bit after, we are a really clear archive for this kind of material. And I think if we come back to what I wanted to say at the beginning, it was a very awkward kind of title to what I'm trying to, to say is, if you're finding people in specific areas in the late 19th century, the early, sorry, yeah, the, the late 18th century, the early part of the 19th century, and you're trying to work out, well, what was happening in their area? What, what in general were people thinking about their lot? Were they happy with it? Were they not? Then some of the best records that you can get into are things like treasury solicitors and home office. The home office and treasury solicitors are the big bureaucracies at this time compared to the small bureaucracies in the localities. And therefore, when the papers come in, they're kept, filed, organised, not listed very well, and then put away. And they're here for us to consult today. So they're, they're a very good source for getting that kind of very intimate material out. What I want to do is I just want to say to you, well, how, how do you find stuff? How do you find some of these records? Now, some of them are very hard to get into. Some of them... Not so. Because what I'm saying is, in terms of chronology, that blue line, starting off in 1782, the key records are the, are the incoming Home Office correspondence. Now, none of these records were actually created by the Home Office. They're all created externally, and they're all coming in. So, H.O. 42, there's some really detailed cataloguing in the middle of the 1790s. Is that about right, John? Yeah? 74, sorry, 94, 95. Yeah. Where you can really march around and find individuals, people and places. Once we get into HO 52, there's a fair amount catalogued for that early, early couple of years, uh, but only for some counties. There's actually been a project running this year where over 100 local historians and family historians in different parts of the country have been working from digitised scans that they've downloaded from a website, and they've started to list this material. 
and those you can actually do keyword searches on. And I think there, there, are, there are several hundred entries that we've, we've put in there, really detailed, thousands of names. Uh, and there's more to go on there. And I'm hoping by January, February time, all of that kind of stuff will be on. You know, it's the vague way that I mentioned that. So, but at the moment, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's hundreds of entries, but it's going to become thousands. From 1839, you can do some, work, some searches across here to your 45 uh, income correspondence. They, they're, they're not as detailed in terms of its listing. It can just be like one line or, or two lines, but you can get in there as a brief catalogue entry in there and there's also another series here to a 44 which runs to some degree along all of these and I, I haven't worked out quite why why there's another series that's like another cache of material but it's very very similar and there is stuff in there about the swing rights that Jenny was talking about where you can you can go in by place name so there's a couple of, of series now you can search by place name to get into those kind of riots if you find material incoming you should then go to HO43 which is the copies of the letters that go back. You can pick up both sides of this conversation through these, through these records. So you can get in through the, the, the entry books. They're not indexed on the catalogue, but there are internal indexes within the volumes themselves. There's also uh, a set of records from the time of the Luddite disturbances where the Home Secretary says, I want you to keep me all that separate so I can get to that really quickly. And that's the disturbance correspondence in HO40. There are brief catalogue entries from that. I believe what you can do is you can at least get into county by county level relatively easily um, with some of them by, by town. And they've got their own entry books, copies of the letters that went, that went back. There's also a couple of other series which are, are really good to look at and I'd, I'd say that for two reasons. One, you do get this material in it and two, they're very well catalogued. HO33 have been catalogued in, in detail. That's the post office correspondence. It's not about, you know, setting up post offices or anything like that. And I wasn't quite sure what this was when I first looked at it. But what it is, is your postmaster in your local village in 1820 or 1830 essentially grassing you up to the Home Secretary and writing the letters in saying, you know, that's Sarah Hutton. Gosh, she's been going to these meetings and causing all kind of havoc and sending those in. And when you think about it, the, the, the post office is, is, is a nice systematised structure based on the country, from which information can be gathered, and the Home Office does take advantage of that, and, and the materials in there. HO 47 are judges' reports on criminals, and quite often, as we've seen, a lot, a lot, of, this, a lot of this activity is illegal activity, and therefore we would expect them to go through the criminal justice system. HO 47 are judges' reports on individual criminals, and they're really well catalogued. You can go in by name, place, court. You can put words like sedition in... But bear in mind that quite often it's not the seditious act that somebody is prosecuted for, it's something else that they would be maybe prosecuted for. Uh, but you can certainly pick up individual names. HO17 has been in the process of being catalogued, and, and, and those are still going into the catalogue now. And there are again entry books for those. The other series which are worthwhile going to are Treasury Solicitors 11 and 24. But there's also a number of research guides which people may or may not have come across, but we've got research guides on our, on our website. And again, because of the criminal activity here, assizes, record information number 14, but also the Home Office Research Guide, which I'm hoping to update and push back as well, because it starts in 1839 there. But there is information on the earlier series that I've been talking about, which is Domestics 47. There is also a number of volumes 
and I know I'm going perilously close to the time when I'm supposed to stop. But there are a number of volumes that are worthwhile having a look at. For Jenny's period, for the swing writers, there's a series of volumes by Jill Chambers, which you may or may not be aware of. And what Jill does is she goes through the assizes, the quarter sessions, the home office records, and she picks out on a county-by-county basis, sorry, a county basis, a list of everybody. What she then does is she cross-references those to things like HO17, HO26. So she picks out all of these individuals and then just runs through the entire archive in terms of what she can find that would link into those. And I'll leave those out there for people to have a look at. So for 1830, sort of 32, for the disturbances and the swing riots, there's an awful lot in there. And she doesn't just stick to the rural side. She, she also goes into the industrial side as well. Papermakers and the mills at High Wycombe. You know, all the people there, they're, they're also in there. For 1842, which again, is very, very poorly listed, there is a book by Aspinall, and it's called The Early English Trade Unions. And what he's done... It's a phenomenal amount of work. Is he's gone through and transcribed every letter in regard to trade unions in full. In very small type. But it's one of the best ways of getting into some of this. I think it's out of print now, but I know we've got a copy in our library. Yes, we've got a copy, I think we have. This is mine, but I think we've got a copy in the library. <laughs> Aspinall. Aspinall, the early English trade unions. So at the moment, I think because of the way our catalogue is... It's data poor for these kind of records. Secondary source is one of the best ways in. There is also, it's obviously the season for this, because it's, again, it's the swing side of things. There's a CD-ROM, Swing Unmasked, which has been put together by the Family and Community History Research Group, which lists something like three, three and a half thousand individual cases of swing activity uh, in 32, 33, sorry, 30, 31, 32. There you can do these keyword searches, people, places, names. You, know, you, can, you can really get into the, into the records there. And I do think, and I'll finish on this point, because I, I really do need to finish. If, we, if we're doing any kind of history, whether it's family history, whether it's local history, or any kind of leisure history, if we miss out what our ancestors really thought about the world that they lived in, I, I know when they were born, I know when they died, I've got a little bit of idea on occupation, and, and, and where they're living and things like that. But what I don't know about is, is any of this kind of stuff, which to me makes that person a, a proper person kind of thing. Because I know I've got a great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. I just don't know who he is. But I know I've got one. What would really interest me is well, what was his life like and what did he think about it? And I think for this period, these are the kind of records that you, you need to get into. So with that, I'll finish talking. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 20th of November 2008 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.